this is the what you just heard is the start of the Ballad of Mary Fagan, a poem or a song that was just about as popular in the South as the song about Lizzie Borden and her axe was up in the North. In the poem, Mary Fagan goes to the pencil factory to collect her pay before she would go to see the Confederate Memorial Day Parade, and she's accosted by Leo Frank at the factory who kills her with a blow to the head. Leo Frank then instructs someone named Jim Conley to hide the body in the basement, where she is later discovered by the night watchman. Some more of the poem describes the anguish of Mary Fagan's mother, and after some short deliberation, Leo Frank is sentenced to hang. The other guy, Jim Conley, gets a year in jail. Simple. Crime and punishment. Not as catchy as Lizzie Borden, but it sold a lot of 78 RPM cylinders and kept a lot of folk singers in business. In her book, the grandniece of Mary Fagan talks about starting a job in Griffin, Georgia in 1977, when they saw that her name was Mary Fagan, one of the supervisors took her aside and sang her the ballad. He had memorized it because he heard his mother sing it throughout his childhood. And just like Lizzie Borden, the story of Leo Frank is prime material for a true crime podcast. Popular opinion has the case sewn up tight. Leo was a crazy man who committed a crime of opportunity and was punished for it. There are some problems with that view of the case. This is Moving Through Georgia, Series 3, Episode 2, Leo Frank. Uh, here's a little more of the song recited by the grandniece, Mary Fagan. She fell upon her knees, and to Leo Frank she pled. He took his stick from the trash pile and hit her across the head. He killed little Mary Fagan. It was on a holiday. And he called on Jim Conley to take her body away. He took her to the basement. She was bound hand and feet. And down in the basement, little Mary lay asleep. Newly was the watchman when he went to wind his key, down in the basement, little Mary he could see. When Mary went to the pencil factory, the National Pencil Company on Forsyth Street in Atlanta, there was no work being done that day. April 26th was Confederate Memorial Day and a Saturday. Pretty much the entire workforce would spend the afternoon watching the parade travel down Peachtree Street. Mary planned to go as well. She had told her mother as much, but first she wanted to collect her wages, $1.20 for the week. She entered the factory and met Leo Frank, a superintendent, who paid her the money. He was working that day. Some other clerks had also come in, but they had left by about noon. Maybe as a Jewish man, Leo Frank didn't have the same connection to Confederate Memorial Day. The only other people in the building were two workers on the fourth floor. According to Frank, Mary came in, asked for her pay, was paid, and left, very much alive. At 3.30 a.m. the next day, this is Sunday, the night watchman was walking his rounds. Newt Lee probably carried a clock that needed to be wound by various keys, you know, attached to the wall in various places, and this would make sure he was walking the factory at night and not sleeping. He stepped into the basement and discovered the body. The police were called, and a few hours later, Leo Frank was at the Atlanta police headquarters where he identified Mary Fagan, an employee whom he had spoken to the previous day. She had been beaten, her clothes were torn, and a cord was tied around her neck. The first suspect was, 
of course, Newt Lee, the African-American night watchman. There were other suspects, and some others were even arrested on that Sunday, but we're going to focus on those suspects who were employees of the pencil factory and who are mentioned in the song. Lee is the first. When the police came to investigate early Sunday morning, among the torn remnants of Mary's clothing scattered on the floor were found two pieces of paper with handwriting on them. One read, and I'm reading these verbatim, He said he would love me, lay down play like the night witch, did it, but that long, tall, black negro did boy himself. I don't know what that means. The other was written on the carbon sheet of an order form, and it read, Ma'am, that Negro fire down here did this. I went to make water, and he pushed me down a hole. A long, tall Negro black did it. I write while play with me. Sounds like the notes you'd find in a David Lynch movie. The spelling is pretty bad, and so it's hard to really understand what the notes are saying. When he was discussing the crime with the police that day, Frank acknowledged that Mary had been paid in the early afternoon after some others who had worked a half day had left, and he asked if the pay envelope had been found with the body. It hadn't. He spoke to the police and then took them to the basement where the body had been found. Detectives found some blood spots near the elevator on the first floor, perhaps indicating that she had been murdered there and then moved to the basement. Some detectives investigating Newt Lee's home found a blood-stained shirt stuffed in a trash barrel. And of course, at the time, there was no way to connect the blood to Mary Fagan, and Lee swore that he hadn't worn it since it got the stains over a week ago. Little Mary is in heaven, while Leo Frank is in jail, waiting for the day to come when he can tell his tale. Mary died on Saturday. On Tuesday, the police also arrested Leo Frank on the basis that he was the last to see the dead girl alive and his generally nervous behavior as he spoke to the police. Leo Frank was born in Texas but lived for a while in Brooklyn, New York. He had been well-educated and had traveled through Europe and had worked in New York and Atlanta. He was married to an Atlanta girl and lived in his in-law's house and he was a prominent member of Atlanta's Jewish community. 160 witnesses were called at the coroner's inquest, and the suspect list was narrowed to Lee and Frank. Frank's conduct toward the women working in the factory was immediately addressed. Girls testified that Frank had winked or smiled at them. Another claimed that Frank had pushed a box of money across his desk toward her and asked, Now how about it? A friend of Mary Fagan testified that she had complained to him about Frank winking at her in a way that made her uncomfortable. Some other women testified that these stories were incorrect and that Frank's behavior among the women and girls of the factory was beyond reproach. Uh, nevertheless, public opinion was starting to turn. Frank himself testified that he was working in the factory that day with some others that had gone home around noon. After paying Mary and noting that she had left, he had a brief conversation with another worker who had drifted into the office, then spoke to some men on the fourth floor before going home for lunch. He was home by 1.20 that afternoon. He returned to work at 3, then left again at 6. His statement was confirmed by a few witnesses who saw him at work and saw him at home that Saturday. 
However, 11 days after Mary Fagan died, the coroner's jury deliberated and recommended that Leo Frank and Newt Lee be held on suspicion of her murder. They took him to the jailhouse, they locked him in a cell, but the poor innocent Negro knew nothing for to tell. Now, if you remember the poem we just heard, it specifically says that Frank killed Mary and ordered someone named Jimmy Conley to take the body away. Conley swept the floor at the pencil factory and was arrested while the coroner's inquest was still going on. He was a generally shady character and apparently owed money to a lot of people at the factory. He had been spotted with some suspicious red stains on his shirt. When he talked to the police, he confirmed that it was indeed the only shirt he owned, but they were simply red clay stains and he had washed them out. On that level of evidence, he was arrested and was sitting in jail while Frank and Lee were facing the coroner's jury. He initially claimed he couldn't write, so he was basically ruled out for writing the notes found with Mary's body, but still remained in jail. When another employee at the pencil factory showed detectives some evidence that Coley could write after all, he was interrogated all over again. So, you know the basic timeline we've come up with so far. Mary goes to the factory slightly after noon on Saturday, is found in the basement early Sunday. Conley's story was different. He claimed initially that Leo Frank paid him $2.50 to write the notes on the Friday before the murder. Frank apparently told him that they would be sent to Frank's mother in Brooklyn. Conley also testified that Frank asked if the night watchman ever went into the basement. Then, kind of lost in thought, he asked himself aloud, Why should I hang? Detectives with this felt that they had not only the author of the notes, but evidence of premeditation by Leo Frank. The problem is the police were happy to get valuable testimony that condemned Leo Frank, even though no one really believed this was true. Conley's story would change a few different times before the trial would eventually begin. Members of Atlanta's Jewish community saw an anti-Semitic government wrongly prosecuting an innocent man. The later historians would say it was fairly easy to turn public opinion against Leo Frank. He was a northerner, wealthy, and Jewish. Southern Christians working on the factory floor while a Jewish northerner sat in an office preparing their paychecks. Attempts by Leo's friends to draw attention to Conley's testimony were basically dismissed. With religion and class factored in, people were more willing to believe the word of an uneducated, poor African-American man, even in a story that was hard to believe. A newspaper story in the Atlanta Constitution, published a few days after Frank's arrest, told the story of a woman who owned a disreputable house in Atlanta. She claimed that Leo Frank called her in a panic and asked for a room where he could take a young girl, saying that it was a life-or-death situation. The story took off, and the papers began to fill with Leo Frank and his various sexual perversions, a second wife in New York, and the obscene photographs that supposedly decorated the walls of his office and home. Never mind that the woman admitted almost immediately that the story was completely made up. The damage was done. 
People stood outside the jail screaming for Frank to be hanged, and court officials received letters saying, hang the Jew or we'll hang you. Judge Roan passed the sentence, and you bet he passed it well. Solicitor Hugh M. Dorsey sent Leo Frank to hell. At the trial, which would end up lasting five weeks, Conley was the star witness. In this version of the story, Frank asked Conley to lock the door after a young lady he was expecting had arrived. Conley said that Mary Fagan, who we called Mary Perkins, entered the office, then Conley heard her scream. Of course, he just sat there and did nothing until he heard Leo Frank whistle. That was the signal to unlock the door. Conley went upstairs and saw Frank with a cord in his hand, who immediately confessed that he tried to be with the little girl, and when she refused, he struck her on the head, possibly killing her. Leo Frank then asked Conley to write the notes and paid him $200 to hide the body. Conley, being a moral and upright man, was reluctant to go right downstairs to the basement and dispose of the body in the furnace, so Frank told him he could leave for a little while, then return when he had calmed down and attend to the matter. On cross-examination, Conley was confronted with the different versions of the murder that he had told in the past, which Conley claimed he disremembered. There's a lot more to the story. And there's a lot more to the trial. There was hair found on a lathe on another floor that may or may not have been Mary's hair. The notes were in a handwriting that was similar to Conley's, but people who knew Conley swore he could never have written them in the short amount of time that he claimed. People went to the papers claiming to have seen Mary Fagan outside during the day, possibly arguing with different men. Conley himself tells four or five different versions of the events on that Saturday afternoon. And again, it's like Lizzie Borden. There's more here than this humble podcast can account. But that's not the point. The point is that a Jewish man was tried and convicted on the word of one highly, highly unreliable witness. Crowds went wild when the guilty verdict was read and the prosecutor was carried from the courtroom on the crowd's shoulders. Requests for a new trial were denied by the trial judge, then by the Supreme Court of Georgia, and then by the Supreme Court of the United States. Although the Supreme Court justice was 5-4, to four, with Justice Holmes saying in his dissent that the court was essentially directed by the mob. My favorite quote here is, Any judge who has sat with juries knows that in spite of forms, they are extremely likely to be impregnated by the environing atmosphere. Leo Frank was in danger as soon as he was locked up. In the prison in Milledgeville, he was attacked by another inmate with a knife who managed to cut his throat. The governor was flooded with letters asking that that inmate be pardoned for attacking Leo Frank. The governor, Frank Slayton, must have had second thoughts and commuted Frank's sentence to life imprisonment. He publicly said he didn't want Frank's blood on his hands, and he referred to another governor who once handed a Jewish man over to a mob just about 2,000 years ago. One night, 25 men entered the penitentiary in Milledgeville and seized Leo Frank. He was dragged out, brought to Marietta, and hanged from a tree. By the next day, 
thousands had turned out to see the body and pull off pieces of his clothing as souvenirs. Photographs of the hanging were even being sold on the streets of Atlanta. The man who owned the tree had a brick wall built around it and armed guards posted. He thought he could sell the tree for a small fortune. There was, of course, an official investigation, but despite thousands of witnesses and actual photographic evidence, not a single indictment was handed down. The body was moved to Brooklyn, where it was buried. An Atlanta newspaper, the Jeffersonian, carried this headline. This is all in caps. A vigilance committee redeems Georgia and carried out the sentence of the law on the Jew who raped and murdered the little Gentile girl, Mary Fagan. Let Jew libertines take notice. Georgia is not for sale to rich criminals. The Frank case is still being debated, and the results are with us even today. The Jewish Anti-Defamation League grew from the B'nai B'rith to help defend Leo Frank, and it still is around today. The case was even mentioned in the investigation of the 1960 bombing of a Jewish temple in Atlanta. In 1986, Leo Frank was granted a posthumous pardon, not because of the atrocities of the trial, but because the lynching denied him the possibility of further appeal. There are lots of resources online if you're interested in this case, including a supposed deathbed confession by a man who witnessed Jimmy Conley commit the murder. But really, I think the person we have the fewest details on was Mary Fagan herself. I saw an awful lot of publications reaching up to the modern day that extol her as the personification of Southern womanhood and the man who attacked her as the manifestation of evil itself. But really, she was a 13-year-old girl who worked in a pencil factory to sustain herself and her family. The only reason she even went into the factory that day was because she had been laid off for a few days previously. The factory had been short of some materials for the assembly line she was part of, and she was checking in to see if she would be able to go back to work Monday. If you have any questions, comments, or any opinions on the case, I'd love to hear from you. Moving through Georgia at gmail.com. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an aid that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all.